Well, we saw in our last study that Peter was writing to the shepherds, to the pastors of the churches in the area, and he was encouraging them to shepherd the flock of God to be faithful in feeding the flock the word of God and be devoted to caring for and tending over the people of God. And that really is the picture that the Bible gives us of the shepherd, be it in a church, be it a home group, be it in a home, be it in a Sunday school class, that, that that is really what ministry is supposed to look like. As Peter moves on, he begins addressing life in the body of believers and really how we are to get along. And I want to remind you that the context that Peter is writing to here is he's writing to people who are suffering. He's writing to people who are going through a very difficult time, suffering under the Roman oppression and suffering under persecution. And 21 times in these five chapters, he addresses that subject of suffering. You see, suffering can bring out the worst in people. It can bring out the worst in attitudes. It can bring out the worst in actions. In suffering, people will oftentimes resort to dishonorable behavior. Tempers will flare, irritations will mount, accusations will fly, and pride will rear its ugly head. And in the passage before us today, Peter mentions two traits that can be like an ointment in the time of tension and suffering. It can be like a healing balm upon that, whether we're talking about, you know, in a church, in a home, in a business. When these true traits are implemented, it can make a bitter situation sweet. The two things that he mentions today are submission and humility. And I think this is a great word today for all of us, but especially for those of us here who are dads, because we are called by the Lord to shepherd our families. We're called by the Lord to put out fires, not start them. We're called by the Lord to be peacemakers in our homes. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we just work our way through this passage today. We'll pick it up in verse five. He says, likewise, Again, remember, he's been talking to the elders, and they're calling to shepherd the flock of God, to tend the flock, to care for the flock. And he says, with that in mind, likewise, with that in mind, he's going to speak now to the younger people, and he wants them to have a similar type of heart. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Peter addresses the younger people. Some Bible translations put it the young men. And his exhortation to them is that they would submit to their elders. And we've talked about this word submit many times already. It's the word hupotasso in the Greek. And it's the idea that you line yourself under someone else's authority. 
It's a military term, and it's used of of placing yourself, relinquishing your rights, and putting yourself under the authority of someone else. So here's my question. Why does he write this particular thing to the young people, to the young men? Well, I think oftentimes in, in times of crisis, in times of suffering, young people and young men in general can tend to be a little bit idealistic. That they're at, they have that attitude of, hey, this is what's wrong and this is what we need to do to fix it. Now, I admit I'm no longer a young man. Wouldn't say I'm an old man either. I'm kind of in that upper middle age bracket of uh, I'm 57 and a half. And uh, recently somebody, I, I mentioned that to somebody and their response was like, gosh, Pastor Rob, you're old. And they were like 45. And I was like, like seriously? Really? But I remember when I was a young man. I was at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And me and my friends who were in ministry there, we were reading the Puritans. And if you've ever read the Puritans, the Puritans can be a little on the extreme side. And oftentimes people who read the Puritans kind of become a little bit arrogant. And that's exactly where we were. And so me and my friends who were reading the Puritans, we're sitting down one day and we're talking. We're talking about ministry. And we start, you know, having this conversation. What is Pastor Chuck doing? Like, what is going on? And, you know, he should be doing this and he should be doing that. I was such a prideful idiot in those days. Like, I really, really had a clue, you know, about how to pastor a church at 21 years old. Well, in my mid to late 20s, when I was on staff here with Pastor Brian, I had matured a little bit. I didn't verbalize the things that I was thinking, but I still found myself at times thinking, you know, what is Pastor Brian doing? And if I was the pastor of the church here, this is what, you know, we would be doing. Well, the Lord eventually let me go and pastor my own church. We started a church up in Oregon, and it was interesting because it was my opportunity to, to employ all of these incredible ideas that I thought would just be amazing. And what I found was that most of them didn't work. And I found myself saying, now I understand why Pastor Chuck and Pastor Brian did it that way. You know, it's been said that a son's perception of his father's through the years will look something like this. From ages three to seven, he says, my dad is my superhero. He can do anything. From ages eight to 11, my dad is so smart. He is so wise. From ages 12 to 16, my dad really doesn't know everything. From ages 17 to 22, my dad doesn't know anything. And then from ages 23 to 30, you know, my dad's pretty smart. I should probably call him and get his advice. You know, sometimes it takes us learning things the hard way for us to realize that, you know, our elders knew what they were doing, to give them that respect that they really deserve. You know, when King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. 
And Solomon, his father, had taxed the people heavily to the point of almost breaking them. And so when Rehoboam took the throne, the people came to him and they said, man, you've got to ease up on these taxes because they're killing us. So Rehoboam went and sought the counsel of some of his advisors. And he had two groups of advisors. He had one group that was an older group of men who advised his father. And then he had a younger group of men, an edgier group of men. They were his contemporaries. And so he went to the older group and he said, what do you think I should do? And, and the older guys the, the, who were, you know, had been there a long time said, we think you should listen to the people. We think you should ease up on them. But then he went to the younger guys and asked them, and they said, don't listen to what the people want. Show them who's boss. Assert your authority over them. In fact, you should say that your little finger is going to be even heavier upon them than your father's waist. Well, he listened to the younger men. And he taxed the people even more heavily, and the people ended up revolting. And the nation split in two from north to south, and it never, ever recovered from that. So Peter wants the young men to have respect for those who have gone before them. To respect their wisdom and respect their experience. And so he says to them, hey, those you young people, you young men, submit to your elders. But notice what he says next. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And so he's painting this picture of the older and the younger being submitted to one another. You see, what is needed in a church is the same thing that's needed in a marriage. And that's mutual submission. You know, a lot of people think that the passage that Paul writes about marriage in the book of Ephesians starts in verse 22 when Paul says, wives be submitted to your husbands. But it actually starts way before that. It starts at least in verse 15 of chapter 5 when he's talking about walking in wisdom. But in verse 21, right before verse 22, he says this, you all be submitted to one another. You husband and wife be submitted to one another in the fear of the Lord. In other words, in a marriage relationship, there should be a mutual submission, a mutual respect, a mutual valuing of opinions. And what is right for in the church, or excuse me, in, in a marriage relationship, is the same in a church. There should be a mutual submission, a mutual respect, a mutual valuing of one another. You know, Calvary Vista is what I would call a generational church. What I mean by that is we have all the generations, all the age groups represented here. And it is important for our future that we have a mutual respect amongst all the age groups. A mutual valuing of one another, willing to learn from one another, thanking the Lord for our differences and celebrating what we have in common. You know, sometimes this is the mistake that we make. We talk to somebody who's looking at something differently than the way we look at it, and we assume that they're wrong and that we're right. Oftentimes, though, the way that they're looking at something isn't wrong, it's just different. And different is just different. And sometimes between younger and old, there can be differences of opinion, but it's not that one's right or one's wrong, it's just a matter of being different. You know, when my son was on staff here, when he first started, he 
was in our graphic department and he did some of our graphics here at the church. He was kind of the, the lead in that at that particular time. And and me and my son, we, we kind of butt heads as it related to, you know, what our church graphics were supposed to look like at that time. And and because I don't like nepotism, I found myself actually being harder on my son than anybody else on staff. And one day we were just kind of having a conversation. He wasn't getting what I was wanting and we were kind of butting heads. And I just said to him, I said, look, just do it the way I want it. And I walked out of his office. And my son proceeded to write me a very long email. And he's really good with words. But basically the gist of his email was this. The way you treat me is different than the way you treat anybody else on staff. And it's not right. And he was right. The way I treated him was a lot harsher. And man, I read his letter and it just pierced my heart. It made me cry. I had to go in and just apologize to him. And from that time on, we found ourselves just valuing each other. And I came to this place of recognizing, you know, his way of thinking is different, but it's not wrong. It's just different. And I need to learn to appreciate that. And I need to learn to, to embrace that. And I could learn from him. And today, you know, we have such a great relationship and we learn from one another. And this is what, what Peter is saying here is, hey, we all need to submit to one another and respect one another and value one another. We're to walk in this. This is the first ointment, that mutual submission. How do we do that? Well, we apply the second ointment as we put on, as he says, and be clothed with humility. The word humility means to get low or low-lying. The word is sometimes used or translated lowliness of mind. In fact, Paul uses that that way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, with lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others as better than yourself. Now, here's what's interesting. In the culture in which this was written there in the first century, the Greco-Roman culture despised the quality of humility, much like our society despises it today. You see, the Greeks believed that there were only two types of people in the world, the Greeks and everybody else. And the Greeks believed that self-confidence and self-reliance and self-aggressiveness were the best qualities, and the only people that were humble people were conquered people. It was their enemies. And when they would conquer a nation or conquer a city, they would take those people and turn them into their slaves and they would become what they called a low-minded person, a humble person. Those were the slaves. You see, the Greeks saw themselves as number one. They saw themselves as being superior. And I think everyone likes being number one, right? Back in Illinois when they first started issuing out personalized license plates there in the state of Illinois, there were thousands of people who submitted to get this license plate. Thousands of people wanted their license plate to read number one. And the guy who was in charge of giving out that you know, specialized license plate found himself in a dilemma where he's like, you know, I can't give this out to someone and have thousands of people, you know, mad at me. So he took it for himself. <laughs> so his car read number one, but that's our nature, right? 
I want to be number one. I want to be right. Even my grandson, my three-year-old grandson, Josiah, he's so competitive. And he's always saying this throughout the day. I won. I won. You know, I did it. You know, and that type of mentality is ingrained in us. It's our pride that makes us want to be number one. And oftentimes that's the opposite, though, of humility. But the Bible always sees humility as a virtue and not a vice. It doesn't say that it's wimpy or that it's a weak person, but actually those who are humble are strong. And you know why? Because Jesus was humble. In fact, one of the chief characteristics of the Savior that we follow is that of humility. In fact, the only biographical statement that Jesus makes about himself, and I want you to think about this, The only biographical statement that Jesus makes about himself is found in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says this about himself, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Think about that. Of all the things that Jesus could have said to describe himself, he says, hey, this is who I am. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And Paul exhorts all of us. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So taking Christ as our model, Peter says, now you be clothed with humility. Clothe yourself with humility. Put on the coat of a gentle and lowly heart. And then Peter tells us why humility is key. When he is quoting here from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, when he says, For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Note that. God resists the proud. You know, the quickest way to pick a fight with God is to be proud. You want resistance from God? Be proud. God hates pride. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says, There's six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And the first thing on the list is a proud look. But you know what? It's our pride that gets us to live independently from God rather than being dependent upon God. It's our pride that makes us think that we can be good enough. It's our pride that sets you against God and God against you. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, there were two brothers who grew up on a farm. And one of the brothers came to a place where he decided, you know, I I think I'd like to follow in my dad's footsteps. I'd like to take over this farm, you know, for my dad when he gets older. And so that's exactly what he did. But the other brother, he didn't want anything to do with the farm. And he went off to, you know, college and he got educated and he got into politics and he became very famous and very wealthy and had a lot of prominence. And one day he came back to visit his brother on the farm. And after dinner, they, they went out for a little walk and they're looking out over the fields and the educated wealthy politician brother put his arm around his farmer brother and said this to him, you know, you ought to think about leaving this farm and making something of your life. 
You know, do something important where you can hold your head up high. Get off this farm. And so the farmer brother put his arm on his, his hand on his brother's shoulder and he said to him, hey, look out over this wheat field, brother. You know, you've seen this, you know it well. And he said, notice that only the empty heads stand up. And he paused to let that sink in for a moment. Only the empty heads stand up, but those that are filled always bow low. In other words, the branch that bears the most fruit is the one that is bent the lowest to the ground. So clothe yourself with the very virtue that the people of this world tend to despise, that of humility and lowliness of mind, because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace is God's undeserved favor that he disposes upon us. It's been said that grace, you take the letters and it stands for God's riches or God's resources at Christ's expense. That all of the resources, all the blessings that God has for us, they come into our life through the conduit of God's grace. And I don't know about you, but I need all the grace from God that I can get. So humble yourself. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's really two options that we have for living. You can either resist God in pride, or you can rest in God through humility. Resisting God says, I'll do it my way. Resisting God says, I'll handle this on my own. Resisting God says, hey, I'll carry my own burden, but resting in God means that I will take my hands off the steering wheel of my life and I'm going to let God lead. Resting in God means I will cast my cares and my anxieties and my worries into his hands. And in a room this size, I would venture to say that there's probably many of you who have come here today with worries, anxieties, cares and burdens that you have been carrying and God says hey I want you to rest in me why should we rest in God Peter gives us two reasons and we'll kind of wrap up with this number one because God is capable and so we're Peter says that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God his hands are mighty that term the mighty hand of God was often used in the Old Testament to describe God's power of delivering his people when they were in trouble that they would cry out to him and it would say and they were delivered by the mighty hand of of God. Why is it used here? Because I think Peter is simply wanting to remind the people that when you humble yourself before God, when you submit yourself to God, that you are putting your life into capable hands, strong hands. You know, I had hip replacement surgery in 2018. And when you go to the hospital to have a surgery like that, they, they'll use this phrase that you're going under the knife. And they give you anesthetic and it, you know, it, it puts you to sleep. And so that's kind of an act of faith, right? You know, you're letting somebody put you to sleep and they're going to tear your body apart. And you're, you know, believing that when you wake up, everything that was wrong is going to be fixed. 
So when I go into a surgery like that, I have a lot of questions for the doctor. Because I want to know that I'm in capable hands. And so I'll ask, so, so how many of these surgeries have you done? If he says three, I'm like, I want another doctor. But if he's like, ah, 3,000, I'm like, okay, great. You know, I think he probably knows what he's doing. I can trust this guy. Well, in reference to God, I'm believing that I'm putting my life into capable hands, hands that are strong and mighty, knowing. This is what God wants us to understand. There is nothing that this world can throw at you that he can't handle. I mean, he's the God who spoke this world into existence. He's the God that the Bible says sustains, holds all things together by the word of his power. Jesus, who spoke this world into existence, is the same one who healed the sick and the lame, who raised the dead, who calmed the seas, who cast out demons. And the Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you're placing your life into capable hands. But it's not just capable hands. It's also caring hands. That's why Peter says, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And the word cares there is anxieties, worries, stresses, and burdens. So instead of carrying those on your own, you're casting them into the capable hands of Jesus. And that word to cast is a very demonstrative word. It's used of when they would take those big fishing nets and they would cast them. They'd throw them out into the water. And that's the idea is that you're casting. It's demonstrative. You're saying, here, God, I want you to take this. Lord, I'm giving this to you. It's not just that I'm just, you know, kind of barely hand, but I said, God, take it. You know, years ago, I was doing a funeral a military funeral down at the military base there on Coronado Island. And as I got on the five freeway in the morning to head down to this memorial service, it was just backed up, bumper to bumper traffic. And you know, you never ever want to be late when you're officiating a memorial service, but especially not a military one because it's a sign of, you know, disrespect and they have guns. So, you know, you you don't want to be late, right? So I get on the freeway and I get behind this guy and this guy has all these bumper stickers, Christian bumper stickers all over his car. And we're in the fast lane and every single time the traffic would stop, this guy in front of me would go like this in his car and the traffic would start going again and it would stop and he'd go and it would start going again and I had been studying this passage in first Peter 5 7 we're talking about casting all your cares and I thought you know that's what he's doing he's casting all this cares like so I started doing it too (laughs) and the traffic started going and and I made it there on time and it was amazing that's the idea. Cast it into his hands. And notice those hands. They're nail-scarred hands. They're hands that still bear the scars from the cross. Those wounds of love and those wounds of grace. You know, the writer of the book of Hebrews 
in talking about Jesus, describes him as our great high priest. That he's a high priest that, that we can run to, that we can come to. And he says that, that he's a high priest who can sympathize with us. In fact, let me read it to you. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He says, hey, we have a high priest who because he was a man, he can sympathize with us in all of our struggles, in all of our temptations. He endured all of our weaknesses. Now, I know some would argue and say, well, wait a second, but Jesus, he says that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was sinless, so it's just not the same. It was easier for him. Not so fast. I love this insight from C.S. Lewis that he gives to this idea of the sinlessness of Jesus as it relates to our struggle and temptation. He said this, Jesus' sinlessness means that he knows temptation better than we ourselves do. Picture a man walking against the wind. Once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man lies down, giving in. And thus not knowing how strong and difficult the wind would have been like 10 minutes later. But Jesus never laid down. He endured all of our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us. He absorbed the full brunt of it. And he withstood. Can I ask you today? What is it today that you're carrying? What is it today that you're struggling with? Know this, Jesus knows and he cares and he's capable. The Bible says that he endured the cross despising the shame. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered shame for us. And the Bible says of you and I who've given our life to Christ that we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. So Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Cast your cares upon the Lord, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's his promise. We cast it upon him, and his peace is set up like a guard over our hearts. It's a peace, he says, that surpasses all understanding. We're we're always looking for peace that comes from understanding. He says, this is even better. I'm going to give you a peace that surpasses understanding when you cast your cares on me, knowing that I care for you, knowing that I'm capable of handling anything that's going on in your life. So here's the question today. Will you humble yourself today so that he can lift you up? Will you cast your cares upon him and leave them in his capable hands, his loving, nail-scarred 
hands. I think the Lord would have us today as we close our service to to give an invitation to do just that. Some of you, you've been carrying things. And in your own pride, even though you, you, you haven't put the two together, but in your own pride, you've been, been carrying it. You've been saying, I'm going to handle this. And you've been trying to hold on to it. And you've been burdened and stressed. And you've carried that in here today. And it's been wiping you out. And I, I especially believe that there are some men, some dads in the room that God is speaking to right now. You've been carrying some things and holding on to things. And the Lord who loves you, the Father who gave his all for you, is inviting you today to say, hey, will you humble yourself? Will you put that into my hands so that I can lift you up? Will you put that into my hands, What that thing on your heart, that thing that you've been carrying, will you lay it down? Will you cast it today in, into my care and rest in my love for you? And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to have the band come back out right now. And as we're wrapping up our time, we're going to sing a couple of songs. And I want to invite you. God's speaking to you right now. And you, you know, hey, that's me, man. I've been holding on to this. I've been struggling with this thing. I've been carrying this weight. I've got this burden. And, and, and the Father today is inviting you to come and to humble yourself. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that in this way today, to just come forward as we begin worship. And you can kneel down on this padded carpet up here. And you bring your heart and you bring that thing and you just lay it before the Lord. And you're saying just in this action today of humility by kneeling before the Lord that you're saying, God, I'm giving this to you. I'm putting this in your capable hands. And I believe that God's going to begin a work today in your life that's going to be transforming as you respond in that way. And as we just bring our hearts before the Lord and responding in that way, whatever it is that you're carrying, as you're kneeling, some of our pastors and leaders are going to just come up behind you and they're just going to lay a hand upon you and they're just going to silently begin to just pray over you today. But I think before we head out here today, the Lord would have us to respond in this way and to bring our hearts before him in humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble.